Welcome to Ingenious, a podcast brought to you by Engineers Without Borders at the University of Bristol. At Ingenious, we explore the future by talking with the pioneering engineers of today. In this episode, Gabriel and I spoke with Anthony Ros-Martinez, the Programme Manager of Humanitarian OpenStreetMaps, or HOTS, Disaster Services Team. Tony has acquired extensive working knowledge of humanitarian action and disaster management in several complex environments while collaborating with many INGOs. We spoke to him about his past and current projects, including building the UN's vaccine distribution mapping program. As always, we started by asking Tony to introduce himself and describe how he got where he is today. Well, I'm Tony. I'm currently the Disaster Services Lead at HOT, Humanitarian OpenStreetMap Team. Going all the way to uni, uh, I studied geography in Spain. I'm originally from Barcelona, so I studied geography in the University of Barcelona. I actually did a semester in Southampton uh, studying oceanography, geography with oceanography. So I've always looked for to widen as much as possible my curricula. Before finishing my degree, I started a master's in cartographic production and GIS. That was one of the parts that I enjoyed more of my undergrad, uh, home mapping. I, I love maps. So at the end of the day, that's that's what I got. But uh, during my master's, I realized that it, it was becoming really technical. Uh, at the end of the day, maps are tools. And learning about tools and systems it is not good if you don't know how to deploy them, how to utilize them, or where do you want to utilize them. So um, during my master's, I started working in the GIS lab, uh, supervising the lab, supporting other students or teachers to just to run GIS programs and classes. And by then, I was finishing my, I finished my master's. Uh, I stayed in school working in the lab, uh, but you need to be a student in order to, to work for them. So I realized that if I, if I enrolled again at my uni, it would be more expensive than the money that I was getting from them. So it wasn't really worth it. And I started looking for more programs because I, I wanted to continue being in school. Uh, so I moved to Germany. I've, I found a program in Geography of Environmental Risks and Human Security. It is a joint master program between the University of Bonn and the United Nations University. So there I spent a couple of years. I did my, my second master's, that's a master's of science. And it was, I loved it. I loved the whole studying in German experience. Uh, I worked here in Irish pub to sustain myself. So it was all in all, it was a great experience. I did my internship with UNUHS at the VARMAP department, just supporting with basic mapping uh, support and undergoing the literature review for my thesis. I focused on the decentralization of Indonesia, of the government. In 2010, uh, Indonesia went to a huge overhaul of their politics of all the system. So I, I just spent the summer doing a literature review. That literature review was the uh, first steps for my field trip. After the internship and after the program, I secured some funds to, to go to Indonesia to do the fieldwork part of the project, which was focusing on ecosystem 
ECODRR, Ecosystem Disaster Freeze Reduction. Basically, I was doing assessment of focusing on, on coastal protection, uh, different protection measures that were in place in communities and trying to assess the perceptions of locals of these positions. So going from gray structures, which could be seawalls and to green structures, uh, which is like replanting mangroves, utilizing the ecosystem, the ecosystem and mixed structures and how they worked and what were the experiences of the communities. There I spent like seven months working on that, and which was great as well. And once I finished, uh, I thought about moving forward to my PhD, but uh, I realized that I, have, I didn't have much real life experience outside of academia. So I wanted to take a couple of years off just to get a, not a real job, but a job outside of academia. At that time, it also aligned with me moving to Canada. I'm based in Canada now, in Edmonton. Uh, my partner grew up close by, so we decided to, to move together. So I had to start uh, like a new life in Canada, moving outside of academia, yeah, trying to build my career here. Here's where I started volunteering for Canadian Red Cross and the, their emergency response teams. And I got my first job as an emergency coordinator with the Canadian Red Cross in Grand Prairie, uh, which is a, a city in the north, pretty, pretty remote. And I spent a year coordinating the whole northwest region of Alberta, uh, coordinating a volunteer team supporting the community with emergency social services. After a year there, the Canadian Red Cross opened their first GIS analyst position nationally, and I took, I took that role. I started supporting them before in, in major events, and when they opened this position, I jumped right into it. Just when I jumped, the team was supporting the tornadoes that affected the Ottawa region at the end of 2018. Since joining the national team, I, I, I focused on domestic uh, responses all through Canada, which is amazing the, the amount of events that happen in this country. It is. I worked in the tornadoes I started. I, we had floodings, we had fires. Uh, so it was, it was a really pretty complete experience. But when I started nationally, I also got involved with the international team. There's a group of information management specialists, uh, which is called SIMS, which is a support information management system, I want to say. And it's a network of IM Red Crossers all around the world. It's sort of informal, but it's where we join and share best practices and try to support each other. So I started there and while I was working nationally, I supported some international responses. Uh, in my own time, volunteering. I always enjoyed volunteering a bit. It's fun because I, coming from Spain is not the most normal thing to volunteer your time. And I had this, this argument with my wife, like here in Canada, you have to volunteer because it's something that is really within the culture. And now I love volunteering. I, it, it, is, it is great. So yeah, I volunteered my time to support responses uh, that needed a good level of Spanish like in Mozambique, which is Portuguese, but it's similar to Spanish, and Venezuela, uh, the population movement. I started supporting it in March 2019. 
And by the end of 2019, the IFRC, the International Federation of the National Societies of the Red Cross and Red Crescent, opened a delegate position in Venezuela for six months. So I decided to take it and deploy to Venezuela as an information management delegate. It was supposed to last only six months, but it seemed, it seemed like a good... I always wanted to be a delegate, so it, it seemed like a good fit. Because of COVID, I was forced to extend my, my mission to nine months, which I wasn't super happy with. But yeah, it was a great experience all in all. And coming back to, from Venezuela, I took the current position as disaster services lead uh, for HOT. The difference here is that I'm not running a technical position anymore. I became more of a team lead. So I do more admin leadership, programmatic stuff at the end of the day in a really technical organization. You've worked in so many projects abroad um, in, you know, crisis areas. It was this always something that you always wanted to get into or did it kind of you after your first degree, it kind of the opportunities presented themselves and that became an interest of yours along the way? Or how did that happen? Sort of. So it was when I applied to my second degree, uh, to, to my second master's in Germany that I and that's why I applied to that uh, program because I, I realized of how how privileged we are in Western countries where you have all commodities growing up. At the end of the day, this added value that we have and we never really take a moment to consider is the, all the opportunities that we have to access this education. Lots of people from underdeveloped countries cannot have this access. So I found it as a way to give back and to make my career more meaningful. At the end of the day, you're going to be working lots of years. Uh, so it's, it needs to be something that really drives you, makes you want to wake up every day to get back to it. Yeah, I think that resonates with me a lot and probably a lot of the people who are involved with Engineers Without Borders as well, which is what the podcast is for. That's kind of what it's all about, is trying to put meaning to the work that we do as well and hopefully being able to have that in with your career. I think that's kind of the main aspiration. And that's also where volunteer takes, takes a big uh, role, I think. Because now currently because I'm, I'm not focusing on technical aspects anymore and I sort of miss it. I am currently volunteering with the Global Sherta Cluster, with Canadian Red Cross. I'm able to support responses in Honduras and I'll, I'll be working back in Venezuela from Canada without having to go in my own time. So that's that sort of complements as well. Do you think you'll return to academia at any point? Or I was thinking about it, actually. I, 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 I realized because I was talking to a to a friend who was asking for some guidance as well and honestly the longer the longer it takes you to get back the harder it gets not just because you get used to having a salary which I, I don't care a lot but when you grow up you kind of need it and also the habits of studying and writing now I write a lot of emails which is not the same but but I write a lot <laughs> So yeah, it is hard. I, I would love to just, my whole, my whole goal of the PhD is to force my dad to call me a doctor. Yeah, that, that's my goal in life. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. So could you tell us a little bit more about what HOT is doing specifically, um, especially around COVID and the vaccine distribution mapping sort of side of things? So I'll start with my role in HOT in humanitarian office in that team. So humanitarian office with map team started participating from Audacious 
which is uh, it goes beyond a project. It is more of a strategy. It's security organization, big funds for the uh, coming five years. So with these big funds, one of the first things that they decided to do is to professionalize their disaster services. HOT uh, was born as an organization doing the high T response in 2010. So it, it just made 10 years. And basically it focuses on, on putting vulnerable people in the map, affected people in the map, like supporting uh, first responders and aid responders to to actually give this aid uh, with maps, through maps, providing those maps. And to do so, uh, utilizes the OpenStreetMap platform, which is a, an open map of the world. Uh, it is designed for locals to capture local, local knowledge. Uh, it sort of aims for locals to map themselves. So in the HUD, what we do is we target these uh, specific areas that have been affected. We look for uh, local communities and try to map with them the area so uh, aid can get to the place at the right time and to the right people. So sort of similar to Wikipedia, but maps really, editable by communities. Yeah, that's a great uh, comparison of OpenStreetMap. What HOT does is it just, it has a global community of, of remote mappers, of volunteers, and we just target areas and focus these volunteers. We acquire satellite pictures, uh, satellite imagery, sorry, and map on top of them, just road, basic mapping at the beginning, roads, buildings, and then we add the local knowledge where possible, where communities, well, local community, local mapper communities are present. They support with some field validation and then add names of the streets and neighborhoods, so on and so forth. So it all started in Haiti in the, in the 2010 earthquake. And it was uh, a volunteer um, initiative. It became an organization and started having all these programs. But the disaster service team was always the disaster service was always a volunteer-run team within this organization, which is funny because it's how we it's how they started. But it is the the part that was getting the less budget because it was it had always been volunteer-run, and they, there's always they always have seen a need for that. So, so yeah, I was hired to to professionalize this team to make this transition from a volunteer team to a professional team. And with me, I have a response coordinator, which he has like ten years of experience within HOT on and off. So he's been there from from the beginning. So wealth of knowledge, and we hired an information manager as well. So a really technical person who supports us visualizing all these data that we create, which is a gap that we found as well. We create so much geospatial uh, data, but we never really utilize it. We just create it and, and put it either to OSM or just create exports so people can download it directly and utilize them in for their uh, geospatial analysis. So interesting projects that we're working on on these lines so we started like with all the boring stuff like building strategies mandates for the team just setting this basis and we're working on some research projects as well uh, especially one with 
Microsoft and uh, the 510, the, which is part of the Netherlands Red Cross. We're researching how to use machine learning algorithms to tag damage assessment imagery. So trying to use machine learning in, the, in damage assessments with, to speed up the process and be able to provide uh, damage assessment information after an event. So that, that's pretty exciting. Then we have the, yeah, the vaccination, the whole COVID response. Uh, when I started uh, at HOT, we were halfway our COVID response. Uh, our COVID response formally started in March and finalized last January, COVID per se. It is the largest and biggest response that HOT has been involved with. It, there were many teams internally co collaborating and coordinating, so it was pretty messy. But it was great. Like I just finished the report a couple of days ago. We it, it is impressive what we did. We mapped like 4.2 million structures, uh, 100,000 kilometers of roads, 24,000 mappers co contributed. Uh, we're active in 28 countries with 30 something organizations. So it was a huge project. So pretty messy to coordinate. And now we are moving to the second phase, which is the vaccination campaign, uh, which is also, it came as a really exciting part of it because we saw, we started working on it like five months ago. Basically our, our thought was uh, how geospatial data and information management can support an equitable distribution of vaccines. And what us, uh, as, uh, spatial data creators could do to support these efforts. To do so, we started uh, discussing with uh, with another organization, which uh, which is called Health Sites. Uh, health Sites they basically create health data and also work through OpenStreetMap. So uh, they are really focused on on health. And with them, we joined with. So we, we widened this discussion with Map Action and other organizations. So we decided to just meet informally and started holding calls. We ended up having a really big group. UN representatives came by, like from WHO, from WFP and others. And so we, we started creating this working group. Uh, with Map Action, we secured a position uh, we secured a role for one person to to be able to coordinate because it became too big for me. I, I was spending a whole day and, and I don't have that much time. From So we have this working group on one side. Then I don't know if you know about COVAX. COVAX is an initiative by Gabi, WHO and UNICEF to distribute vaccines in a X amount of countries. I, I don't know. I don't remember the exact number. They have started as well their their GIS working group. So it started a bit later than ours, and it is still being formalized in some senses. Like basically, what they are trying to do is to map all the organizations that are uh, in the table or technical partners, do some country assessments and some matchmaking between the benchmark of the technical partners and the country assessments. While they'll do that, uh, we're also working with five other organizations to pilot a project in a, in a smaller country list to start the, the wheel moving to, uh, not being, because we've been on standby for five months already. I'm 
personally, <laughs> I'm quite fed up about talking about vaccine vaccine distribution and not actually working on it. It gets frustrating. And that's one of the things about organization coordination that you have to wait a bit. I was wondering if we want the, you know, the vaccines to be distributed equally amongst like all areas in the world. So I wondered if it has been dealt fairly or if it hasn't been, what are the main barriers in certain countries as to why it's not being dealt fairly? Yeah, I wondered if you'd come across anything like that. Well, but that, that's quite obvious though. I mean, and, and that's me, Tony, personally talking. Like that's not, has nothing to do with my work. But when you have countries that sign COVAX, uh, for this equitable distribution, but at the same time sign agreements with the same vaccine distributions asking for five times the vaccines necessary for their population, you know that it's not going to be equ- equitable. There has been way more demand than there was capacity to, to answer it. And also this demand sometimes has been like that. There, there, there are countries that have ordered for two, three, and even four times amount of vaccines in regards to the population that they have. You have that for one. And then I heard, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, vaccine campaigns have started in, some, in, in lots of Western and developed countries, but also in undeveloped countries. What was puzzling to me is that a couple of weeks ago, only 160 vaccines haven't got down to Africa. Whereas uh, even Canada was starting like a, a full rollout. But Ghana received 600,000 vaccines last week, if I'm not mistaken. So vaccines are starting to arrive to to sub-Saharan Africa and, and countries that are part of this COVAX agreement. Uh, but that's why we also created that uh, working group outside of COVAX, because uh, COVID doesn't limit to countries within the COVAX list. So there are lots of countries that are not within that list and will need some support. Yeah, so I don't think personally it is being equitably distributed. I think there has been lots of time to prepare, but at least from a global perspective, there's not actual piloting that have gone through. And I'm talking from the geospatial information management side, which is also, it's just a small component. But at the end of the day, what we as information managers do is try to utilize and leverage data to inform the decision making. You can go on without information management. Yes. Uh, It is the most efficient way to work. Not really. But there are lots of old school responders that don't really think like that. So as soon as they get something, they get any kind of goods, they just distribute them, utilizing their experience and their their subjective analysis so so yeah they won't wait for any organizations to to come and tell them what to do with the vaccines as soon as they get them they will distribute them more or less efficiently so there has been work done but i don't think it's it's been enough and on time so that's that's going to be a challenge the eyes and ears really of a of a huge vaccination program i suppose you know, you can't vaccinate people if you don't know where they are. It is the approach, though, because uh, every Ministry of Health is responsible for vaccine for the for the vaccination in their own countries. But if the Ministry of Health is not strong enough, or there are not enough resources internally, then they they will ask help externally. It is really interesting because there are lots of interrelations. And even within the same organization, they have global, regional, local teams. 
So they have to coordinate internally in order to be able to lead a consortia of organizations. So it, it gets really messy really quick. But, but yeah, for from our side, we know that, that it, it is important to know where people are if you want to vaccine them. Uh, which, where are the roads? Like, how are they, how are these, how are they going to maintain this cold chain if they don't know where the roads is, where the roads are, sorry, where the health facilities are, where the uh, populated places are. So, of course, um, local ministries of health should know that, but it is not certain. Um, there are many countries that don't are not well mapped. Normally, these countries tend to be the poorest, the more vulnerable. Maps are really political at the end of the day. Yeah, we all need to accept that eventually. <laughs> and that's that's the beauty of OpenStreetMap, that utilizing this mapping experience as a building capacity opportunity, not just going uh, as a new colonialist uh, NGO, just going to save the poor, the poorer, uh, save, save because they are poor and they don't have anything. We go there and we save them and we go back. And in five months, we have to come back because something else happened. So the idea is to go there, build some capacities, help the, help them create a mapping community so they can continue mapping themselves. And it, it links really, really nicely with what we were talking at the beginning of all these learning opportunities that we have in Europe and developed countries, where if you don't give local communities the tools and the knowledge to build resilience by themselves, they, you're creating <clears throat> a dependence on your team, on on your knowledge, on your developed systems, tools that they cannot use because they don't have access to the education or access to the licenses and so on and so forth. So the idea is to, once you go there, you create some local capacities and you, you empower the local communities. You empower them to map what whatever they feel relevant that needs to be mapped not what you as as an outcomer thinks that should be there beyond basic infrastructure that is needed for response like roads and buildings. That's fascinating. So it kind of allows the map to form organically rather than you coming in with some preconceptions about what you think is important in their community, whereas they can show you that because ultimately they know way more about their region than you will ever know. It's really interesting. And also what shouldn't be mapped because not everything should be mapped. Here in... In Canada, the Canadian Red Cross works with indigenous people, indigenous peoples uh, trying to map their their reserves and their cultural relevant areas. And in some cases, they decide to not map trapping lines or powwow uh, locations, so these don't get vandalized. So try to hidden hide them a bit from the map. So you have both sides. Uh, also, during a conflict, it is, is it good to map everything in a conflict? Do you really want to map where hospitals or schools are in a war zone? Maps are political, <laughs> that's the conclusion. And having locals, uh, the people that are being mapped, having the last word, that's the important thing. Do you gather much primary data yourselves or is it purely from kind of the communities putting forth the data? So that, that's the thing. That's where uh, our organization is, is becoming a beast because it's growing a lot. But uh, what has been doing a lot is to have long, mid to long-term programs 
where these capacities are built with uh, these mapping, okay, mapping communities or mapping organizations that work local, locally, sorry. So we will channel funds to them uh, via micro grants or long, longer projects that actually provide training to them, support them with field, uh, field mapping, and yeah, just building these capacities, uh, teaching them to grow. My perspective is always focusing on the response side of it, but our organization does much more than that. So I'm, I'm sort of not siloed, but uh, I have a heavy focus on response, but building disaster risk reduction projects through building capacities and, and mapping areas, it is a big component of, of what HOT does, uh, yeah, it, which is really linked with the sustainable development goals. So, so yeah, it, we, it's, it's what I mentioned at the beginning. My team was was the least funded because the they were focusing the organization was focusing on on programmatic, not respond not not response related, but more building local capacities projects, which is great and and has gone really well. We had. Uh, in Tanzania and Turkey, Philippines and Indonesia, they, they were really strong. So hot open offices, open offices in these countries and became working with local teams. And these local teams grew a lot, uh, so much that uh, they became their own organizations affiliated to hot, but their own independent organizations. And that's sort of the model that, that hot, uh, Liked so instead of opening new country offices, it decided to focus its energies in these organizations, uh, opening hubs, regional hubs, to be able to get closer to the to the country level, but allowing local organizations to be empowered and work through them. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the actual process of once you've gathered the data forming these maps and then where they're distributed, like how, how they're used in the response to these crises. That's also one of the gaps that we had <laughs> because uh, as a volunteer team, you see a need and you just fulfill it. You don't really care that much about the impact of your actions. As long as you're fulfilling that need that you found, you're good with it. Now we're trying to to go one step further that, uh, trying to implement some monitoring tools and and reach that last, last mile of, of our actions, seeing the effects and the impact that our mapping did. But basically, I'll go through the whole process. Like uh, we hear of an event somewhere, uh, we, the first thing we do is try to, to contact partners and local communities. If we know that there's a local community and it's strong enough, we just contact them and ask them what we can support them. As a global team, what support do you need? If we know that any of our close organizations, like we work with Missing Maps, which is a consortia of organizations, uh, which was founded by, by American Red Cross and British Red Cross, but basically focuses on the same, uh, mapping the most vulnerable communities. Uh, so we utilize this consortia a lot to see, to try to coordinate during response with organizations that are more uh, that work in the field. 
So if we know of any of an organization and a community, we directly contact them and try to articulate a request. So we have a, an objective, an area of interest. We work uh, to acquire the geospatial, the imagery. We we work with different different providers. Once we have the imagery, we can start setting the tasks. We have a tasking manager that allows us to break the projects in really small quadrants and each volunteer can work on a quadrant, on a quadrant uh, individually then its work gets validated by a, by a more experienced volunteer and until it gets accepted until it's mapped properly so once we have all this data this data gets automatically well, automatically updated in OpenStreetMap and also made accessible via exports in HDX, Humanitarian Data Exchange, which is a, it is a resource from UNOCHA. It was created by UNOCHA, if I'm not mistaken. And it is basically where you as an information manager will go to acquire data, acquire data from any country. So we try to update the data sets there. So the data that we just mapped is as close as what it is in HDX. And that's good. It is good because it makes our data really accessible. It is free to all. Um, the only license that have is Open Database Licensing, which is the same license as OpenStreetMap. It only requires uh, people using the data to reference that they are using OpenStreetMap data. Beyond that, anyone can use the data for for their purposes, but it makes it really hard to track what the data is being used for, because anyone, literally anyone can download this data and utilize it for whatever they want, uh, which is good and bad. But <laughs> so that's why it's really important for us to set these relationships before um, an event occurs. So we know that once uh, British Red Cross, uh, IFRC, MSF, or any organization, we know that they are going to deploy. We know that they they might be needing this data. So just contact them, reach reach out, ask them first what type of data they need, uh, where do they need it from, like which area, and try to link, start these conversations about impact. We close. Uh, every time that we close a response, we hold an after-action review, which is a sort of a debrief of the response. Pretty straightforward. Uh, forward is what went well, what could be improved, and what needs to be improved, sorry, and what could be improved for the next time. So holding these uh, conversations with internally, with our team, with the communities that we were able to engage in the field, and with partners, that allows us to collect some of these impact stories and improve for, for next events and also create uh, a space of discussion where you have local communities, you have partners that worked, and we try to invite other, other partners as well to try to move from, a, from their response, short-term work to a mid-long-term development work with these communities. And that actually worked really well in, in Beirut after the Beirut expo explosion last summer, we were able to connect through these after-action reviews the German Red Cross with the Lebanese Red Cross and, and a local organization 
in Lebanon that was mapping. We, we had really good experiences with that. To what extent do you think this this mapping needs to be uh, sort of forward-looking in preparing for disasters in areas, and to what extent is it having to be done after issues have already happened? Um, and do you think there's scope to potentially do better? Well, it's like everything. Why would you prepare for anything in life? It is preparedness is a huge asset for disaster response. The idea here is to not face it, uh, to not scope it as as a response mechanism, but as an empowering mechanism for the community to help them become more resilient on their own so they don't need this global support. Having this information at the micro level, it, it is super useful for disaster response, but not only for disaster response, for the day-to-day life, it is it is part of the, of the social fabric. And lots of these communities are not well mapped in, in common tools like Google Maps. Everybody uses Google Maps, but there's not a... Google has no motive to be mapping these areas because it's not of... Like business-wise, it doesn't make sense for them because there's not that incentive. So they end up being poorly mapped or not mapped according to their needs, which it's part of what we discussed, like giving them the tools and the some saying, giving local communities some saying what gets out in the map. Going back to your question, I think it is really important to, to not be reactive. When you're being reactive, you're always one step back from, from what you need to be mapping. If you have a really well-mapped community, like Beirut explosion, let's put that example. If Beirut is really well mapped, you have this explosion, you're able to map all the buildings that have been affected and track which ones are being uh, rebuilt or uh, fixed and so on and so forth. You have, through this engagement, you have a, a, you're able to, to draw a really clear line. But if, if the map is not well, it's not properly uh, maintained. So if you go there, you start mapping what was there after the explosion. It is important because it's important to know what was there before, but then if you delete everything that was there before and don't put it back, then you're going to end up with a map and a huge hole in the middle. So it is it is a continuous work. And that's why it's important to to empower local communities so they, they can continue ma- mapping themselves. OSM, at the end of the day, it's a life map. It's it's a life, as communities are. I think it's pretty evident now how important this sort of work is. I would like to know kind of if you have any advice for those who'd like to get into this field and what kind of thing they can be doing at university to prepare themselves. I would start uh, volunteering. As uh, I think we, talk, we touched a bit at the beginning, uh, there are lots of organizations like Engineers Without Borders, probably you can volunteer with them. Um, through universities, I know youth mappers, <clears throat> they open chapters in universities to try to get university students into OSM. Going to uh, HOT, HOT, Humanitarian Open Street Map, offers lots of volunteer positions, uh, volunteer opportunities, sorry, from basic remote mapping to being part of the activation working group. My team, the disaster services team, we work through a volunteer team. So the volunteer team, the activation working group, they are the ones who lead responses, we support, uh, we create the structure of support for this volunteer team to be able to work. So volunteering, it has always been a big part of, 
of my humanitarian career. Like from beginning to a, as a volunteer to continue volunteering to managing volunteers. So understanding how volunteer work works, I think it, it is it is key. So a big important of my career, like my schooling, is that social sciences are they tend to be transversal, more multidisciplinary, uh, have multidisciplinary approaches. I find that it has been easy for me to bridge between really specialized um, profiles like engineers, doctors, and I see I see a lot of value into that as well because at the end of the day you you never have a, a well it is rare that you have a, a team full of engineers or a team full of doctors there are always lots of um, different profiles within a team yeah trying to bridge between them understanding and helping them communicate I think that's also been really helpful for me. In humanitarian responses, normally there's a cluster system, which is a system where it just groups uh, organizations by their specialties, like during a response where the local systems have collapsed, like you have health, you have shelter, you have CCCM, which would be temporary shelter, protection, wash, uh, which is water and sanitation, water hygiene and sanitation. Each cluster has specialists from that field. So being able to coordinate them takes a lot of, uh, take, takes a big multidisciplinary approach. And what in my work in Venezuela, it was classified as a health uh, operation because we were trying to support the health system in Venezuela, which has seen better days. Uh, so we had two doctors in the team who were running programs, but because they are doctors at the end of the day, so they have their formation, they have, they know how they, how they work and they work, they work really well between themselves, but they, they didn't coordinate that well with our, with an engineer for sure. And another technical person working on water and sanitation, but focusing on health. So for us, the supporting uh, teams as information management, um, PMR, which is reporting, monitoring, and evaluation, being able to bridge and help them uh, communicate better. That I found that that was fun. It is cool because you get to learn a lot from from different fields. But it is important because if they don't communicate properly, uh, it is hard to to work as a properly oiled machine. And is that a skill which comes just through? experience and learning in jobs and teams where you have to deal with different disciplines well i'm a geographer so <laughs> no so to me it was easy because it came with my with my background engineers tend to silo themselves a lot and it is interesting though like uh, the mentality of an engineer so yeah, normally more problem solving focused people so being able to make them understand like other factors that could affect and widen a bit the perspective that it's not always black and white. So nothing wrong against the engineers. I mean, I, I love working with engineers. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I, it's true. It's true. Um, you know, we don't often on our courses have a lot of talk around the, the context in which uh, engineers work and um, integrating with other parts of the world, really. And um, I think it's something that we should improve. Social sciences is all the opposite because you don't have the equation. You have to learn how to <laughs> how to cope with others. <laughs> 
So I guess it'd be good to just finish off with kind of what projects are you looking to work on in the future? Uh, like where, where would you hope to see yourself, you know, five, 10 years down the line? I don't normally think that far ahead. <laughs> I should actually someday. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm trying to stop and embrace a bit this, uh, the work that I'm doing right now because building a team, it, it is a really nice experience. And I think we have so much work that I don't really get to, to enjoy it. So uh, that's for one, just trying to appreciate more what I'm doing, trying to get a step and, and rest a bit to enjoy it. And then secondly, I'm, uh, I, re- I love the Red Cross. I love working with the Red Cross. So I'm, I'm deepening my engagement when, where possible. So probably I'll be looking for short-term deployments with them, just make, making, trying to make it compatible with my current role, but just taking a month off work and deploy it, using it to deploy to some countries. Now I'm really focusing on response and that's, you can plan ahead, but not a lot. You are, you have to always be um, not on call, but almost, you get used to it, but, but it is not super enjoyable. So probably in five, 10 years, well, five, no, but in 10 years, I will probably look into more programmatic, uh, easier to cope with a family lifestyle sort of roles, like something working more on long, long-term programs and less response, because you always have to be with an eye on the news and, and always being on, on top of things, which it is, it is interesting, it's cool, but I don't know if I want to be there in 10, 20 years. Thank you, Tony. It's been so fascinating. Thank you. We've really enjoyed listening to you. Um, you've obviously got a huge remit and um, really impressive work that you've done. Um, incredible. Yeah. So thanks for talking to us. Thank you, Tony. Thank you. And same to you guys. Uh, all the best. Thanks so much for having me. If you enjoyed this week's episode of Ingenious, please subscribe and share the podcast with friends. We'd also love to hear your feedback. To get in touch or find out more about us and our guests, head to ingeniouspod.org. Music for our episodes is kindly provided by Yemzo Katana. Check him out on the SoundCloud.